Begin open up to Revelations chapter 19. I warn you, this is a wonderfully terrifying passage. Wonderful and And as we turn to Revelations 19, as I was meditating on this passage and the way it begins, I was trying to relate to how, how can I describe this passage of Scripture. I had one experience. I, I've never experienced anything like it, and I don't think I'll ever experience anything like it again. But back in 1997, a million men gathered together, shoulder to shoulder, across the Mall of Washington, D.C., from the Washington Monument to the Capitol, and they were all lined along the uh, mall area. And it was for the Promise Keepers, Million Man March. And I was squeezed somewhere in the middle of the, this large crowd, all across the crowd, they had loudspeakers. So you could hear the people on the platform. And one man, he began with a prayer. And then he said, before we start everything, uh, I'm sure you're all familiar with this hymn. I'd like you to sing it together. And, and I'm going to lead it, and we're just going to sing it. And he started off, and there was, remember, about a million, million men. It just started slow, and it was a little ripple in the water, and then it started building. It began, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And then everybody started off, early in the morning, my song shall rise. Hallelujah, for our God Almighty reigns. 
give him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean, was given her to wear. Fine linen stands for the righteous acts of the saints. Then the angel said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. And he added, These are the true words of God. At this I fall and fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, Do not do it. I am a fellow servant with you. And with your brothers who holds to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. I then saw heaven standing open. And there before me was a white horse whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he had this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun, which cried in a loud voice to all birds flying in midair. Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat flesh of kings, generals, and mighty men, of horses, and their riders, and the flesh of all people, free and slaves, small and great. Then I saw the beast and the kings of the earth, and their armies gathered together to make war against the rider on a horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who performed the miraculous signs on his behalf. With these signs he had eluded those who had received the mark of the beast. And worshipped his image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest of them were killed with the sword that came out of the mouth of the rider and the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. It's a nice scene, isn't it? <laughs> really nice. Actually, in this chapter we have two scenes. I've entitled this Wedding in a War. And the reason is because the first half is a wedding. The second half is a war. If you look at it like this, there's two realms. The first half is taking place up there above the crystal sea. Down below is what is about to ensue for the rest of the world. Up there is a wedding. Down here will be a war. And what's going to happen in the middle, there's going to be an engagement from the groom is going to come on white horse down to destroy those on earth. That's the movement of chapter 8. Pretty simple. Actually, this may be the greatest chapter of extremes in the whole Bible. You're going to have wonder, I mean, wonderful things happen. Amazing. But you're going to have horror. <coughs> In devastation to a degree that has never been known to man ever, without any mercy. That's the hard part. 
sorrow began with the events in heaven, what is taking place in heaven. Never before has a wedding been so anticipated like this wedding in chapter 19. Never was a bride so beautifully adorned. And honestly, never was a groom more magnificent. It's amazing. But before the groom shows, we, we get a picture of this bride. The bride includes all of the people who belong to Jesus, and they come to a feast, a banquet. Actually, chapter 18 ended, if you remember, we talked about Babylon the Great. God destroyed Babylon the Great, this world system that has been engulfing the wickedness and idolatry of mankind. That ends in chapter 18, reminding us of how they have all the guilt of the blood of the saints. They are responsible for the martyrs. They are responsible for those who are killed on earth. That's what verse 24 says. Then it catapults us up into heaven instantly, and there those who are martyred are seen, along with the church. So you can say it like this. The great wedding is full of those who were killed in the tribulation. Secondly, that's verse 2. It talks about all of the servants whose blood is going to be avenged. They were killed in the tribulation. Then you have verse 4. It talks about 24 elders and living creatures. 24 elders. We said a long time ago represented both the saints of the Old Testament, 12 of all the tribes of godly people, and the saints of the New Testament. 12 apostles and those who believe the message. Actually, the last time we read about the 24 elders was Revelation chapter 4. That was when the rapture occurred. They were vaunted up into the presence of God. And that's where they've been through the whole tribulation period. It also includes the heavenly angels. All of the people in heaven, the martyrs, in the church, in the Old Testament saints, are the bride. And if you look in verse 7, it describes them. Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. Who's the Lamb? Jesus. His wedding has come. His bride has made herself ready. She's wearing fine linen, bright and clean. That rep- represents her righteousness. If you believe in Christ, you receive His righteousness. It also represents their good works that testify to His glory on earth. So those people who suffered for Him, that rep- they are going to be rewarded and they are going to be shining. If you are a Christian, you are included in the bride. Your name is on this reservation list for this banquet. You get to go in. The bouncer will let you pass. It's going to be unbelievable. Listen to what Isaiah 25 says about the banquet. Describes it. It says, and again, this is the Bible, so... I cannot be held responsible for what I'm about to read. The Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people. A banquet of aged wine. The best of meat and the finest of wine. On this mountain, He will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people. What's the shroud? Death. Sin and death. God likes for us to enjoy good food. He's the one who made steak to sizzle. He made fried chicken to be finger-licking good. And Doug, you can agree with me on this. He made barbecues to have smoked meat that just falls off the bone. God made that. 
And I know it's close to lunch, so forgive me. I want, you one, I want you to notice one other thing about this wedding. Take a look at, ver, just follow me, it's starting in chapter 19, verse 2. They are shouting, hallelujah. Verse 3, they are shouting, hallelujah. Verse 4, they are falling down and they are crying, amen, hallelujah. Verse 5, they are praising God. Verse 6, there's a sound like a monstrous storm. This is going to be the loudest party you've ever seen. It's going to be noisy. It's going to be raucous. People are going to be exploding with joy. They won't be able to hold it in. They can't contain it. Meanwhile, those suffering on earth and those in hell won't get to taste a speck of happiness. There is this lie perpetrated that hell is the place where the partiers go. That is the biggest lie you've ever heard. The partiers get to go to heaven. Those who truly party in righteousness and true joy. Where their joy is not at the expense of hurting other people or their own body. Their joy is at what is all righteous and good and true. The irony is, did you know true wickedness is the most boring thing in the earth? Because the results of it never leave you. Guilt never leaves you. So if you want to be included to the real party, this is it. And then the moment comes. After the bride has finished eating, the singing has slowed, a hush will descend. I think personally it will be the moment of all history and and time has been moving towards. Actually, Joe, you're... Joe Clement shared something with me. He said to me, he said, it's not that the earth is falling to pieces. It's really what's happening is all the pieces are falling to where they should be to get ready for everything. The moments happen. And I believe this moment, you probably don't know it right now, but this moment is what you have been waiting for your whole life. It's verse 10. It's what you've been waiting for. Listen to what it says. So they're singing, the wedding supper of the Lamb's going on, and then I think this is John or some, some prophet. He basically says, these are the true words of God. And then, oh no, John falls and he says, I fell at his feet to worship him. But he said to me, don't do it. Don't worship me because I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold the testimony of Jesus. And then he says, worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. What he means by that, is all of prophecy, that means things foretold, written about about what's going to happen in the future, all of prophecy, all of Scripture, is to testify about one person. One. Jesus. That's what everything is about. Everything, and I mean everything God has ever done, or has had written down, has been leading to this man, our husband, and this moment when the groom is going to be revealed. Instead of saying, here comes the bride, We're going to sing, here comes the groom, because that's what it's all about. In fact, before Jesus went to the cross, he was praying to the Father in John 17, and he had a a request. Listen to his request. He prays, Father, I want those you have given me to see my glory. 
This is the moment. This is what he's been longing for. The moment has arrived. Verse 11 says, Heaven now is open, and here comes the groom. The presentation of the groom has arrived. We are going to finally see Jesus. Finally see Jesus as we've never seen Him before. The first time Jesus came, He veiled Himself, it says in Philippians 2. He emptied Himself. He took the form of a servant. He came humbly, happy to be one of the nameless faces in the crowd. People ignored Him. People ridiculed Him. People walked right by Him. Not anymore. Once the gates of heaven fly open, as recorded here in Revelation 19, from this point on, you will never, and I'm, I'm, not, I'm not kidding around, you will never be able to take your eyes off of Him again. For three reasons. Number one, He will be glorious. By glorious, He's going to be both morally, that means inside, intrinsically, and outwardly, physically, a beautiful man. Listen to, listen to Revelations 19.11. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. The idea of this horse is ready to be mounted to triumph and victory. A white horse whose rider is called, this is his name, Faithful and True. That's because a name represents who you are. So morally, he's beautiful. Physically, it says, and we'll talk about verse 12, how he's going to have eyes like blazing fire, but physically, on his head are crowns. The idea is on his head is going to be ornaments of his kingship. It says his robe is going to be white, but dipped in blood. He's going to have a name written on him that nobody knows. What is that name? Do you know? Well, no, no, nobody knows it, so I don't know. And any scholar that says he knows it is lying to you because it says right here, nobody knows that name. So does anybody know what the name is? No, nobody knows. So don't let anybody fool you. But, if you look at verse 16, on his robe and his thigh, some people speculate he might have a tattoo. I don't know. I think he's going to have an embroidered robe of white that beautifully says, King of kings and Lord of lords. Go to Psalm 45. I want you somehow to keep a place in Revelations 19, but we're going to go to a number of places in the Old Testament because the Old Testament couldn't wait for this day. Specifically, Psalm 45 is a wedding psalm. The wedding psalm of the Messiah. And it gives us a detailed glimpse into His beauty. Psalm 45 says, verse 1, My heart is stirred by a noble theme. I, I just got to tell you. That's what the writer saying. I can't hold it in. As I recite my verses for the king, my tongue is the pen of a skillful writer. Why? Because you're the most excellent of men. Your lips have been anointed with grace. And what you'll see, this is in reference to Christ, specifically at His coming. Just what we just read. All His life, His lips have been anointed with grace because God has blessed you forever. Then it says, gird your sword upon your side. He's putting His sword on. He's getting ready to battle. Clothe yourself with splendor and majesty. That word splendor, Hebrew, means ornament and design of exquisite detail. Magnificence of, of, of just this... You can't take your eyes off of Him. And then it says this, 
in your majesty, ride forth victoriously in behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. Just like it says in Revelations 19, he bears the name faithful and true. And he's going to ride out in behalf of truth, humility, and righteousness. The question is, what, it, what does it mean he's going to ride out on behalf of truth and righteousness? What is righteousness? What is truth? What is humility? Well, in a way, they're ideas. They're he, he's going to put everything back the way it should be. That's the idea. He's going to make everything new. He's going to restore the earth back on its proper foundations. But when Jesus rides out for righteousness and truth, it means more than just an idea or setting things in place. He's actually coming to ride for Himself because He is righteousness and truth embodied in a person. It's funny when you think of all the wars that were ever fought You know, kings like Napoleon or Caesar wanted to write out for the glory of his name and we'd say, what wickedness. But when Jesus comes writing out for the glory of his name, there is nothing more righteous than that. Nothing. Because he's everything. He is the end of all things. It is ever and always, life is ever and always about Him. If He simply came to fix the world, to make it right, and to leave, it would never be right. Because Jesus is the desire of our heart. And with Him, and in His presence, everything is made whole. Without Him, everything is hollow. Shallow. Just props. So the first reason why we won't be able to take our eyes off Him is He's going to be glorious, in a real sense. Secondly is... And you need to really listen to this. He's going to be angry. Our groom, according to Revelations 19.12, is going to have fire in his eyes. Have you ever seen somebody righteously angry and you had to just step back and you you can't take your eyes off of them? You just can't. They are a sight to behold. Jesus will be terrifying in his anger. I once heard a, a theologian put it like this. Actually, when Mark, Mark Lindsley talked about the fear of God, he talked about how he was in this cloud and he was hunting a bear and a bear walked by him, but you couldn't see that bear, but you could hear the rocks and the shale slide down the mountain. He said in that moment there was a fear, but... It, had all of your senses awake. I heard a theologian said the holy, holiness of God is like driving back a, by, uh, by a terrible accident. You don't want to see it, but you want to see it. you got to see it. The anger of God is going to be like that. I don't think we realize how fed up God is. How long has He been holding back? How long has He been silent while the world mocks Him? How long... Do people think they can walk all over him? Maybe 2,000 years he has been a name to scorn, to use as a bad word, a weak religion where we just are humble servants. Nietzsche just mocked him. He was a philosopher of Germany. Just mocked him. And so do the present day guys like Richard Dawkins. Do you want to see what he's going to be like when he comes back? I bet you you have rarely read this verse. Go to Deuteronomy 32. 
The whole mood of this is fury. It's actually a song of Moses. Moses is a prophet. He's predicting the future when the Messiah returns. He tells us what the Messiah is going to be like. And he's going to tell us why the Messiah is returning. But you have to just listen. The undercurrent underneath this is a, a slow boil, a fury. Starting in verse 34 of Deuteronomy 32. I'm not sh- too sure people use this for their devotions too often. And you'll see why. Starting in verse 34. Actually, the Messiah is writing, so this would be the words of Jesus. Have I not kept this in reserve and sealed it in my vault? Meaning he has kept something in his, his like safe. He hasn't taken it out yet. It's still in there. What is it? Verse 35. Um, it's mine to avenge. I will repay. In due time, their foot will slip. There is the enemies. Their day of disaster is near, and their doom rushes upon them. The Lord will judge His people and have compassion on His servants. When He sees their strength is gone and no one is left, slave or free, He will say now, where are their gods, the rock they took refuge in, the gods who ate the fat of their sacrifices and drank the wine of their drink offerings? Let them rise up to help you. Let them give you shelter. So what He's saying is when my wrath comes, run to your idols. Let's see, if they, let's see if they can protect you. I would say the same thing to the people in our day and age who have, have basically traded God for possessions and riches and a title. Run, run, to your, run to your 401k. Atheist, run to your philosophy of reason. See if it will protect you. Because watch, it gets bad. Verse 39. See now that I myself am He. There is no God beside me. I put to death and I bring to life. I have wounded and I will heal. And no one can deliver out of my hand. I lift my hand to heaven and declare, as surely as I live forever, when I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand grasps it in judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries. I will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood while my sword devours flesh, the blood of the slain and the captives, the heads of the enemy leaders. Rejoice, O nations, with his people, for he will avenge the blood of his servants. He will take vengeance on his enemies. He will make atonement for the land and the people. It is anger that he shows And with God, his rage is right. It's righteousness. I want to say one more thing that will captivate us. I think, number one, not only will he be glorious, but not only will he be angry, but he's going to do all of this alone. He's going to do it alone. There's nobody else that is going to render vengeance but him. See, the world deserves vengeance. They've been mocking him. They've been ignoring him. But he's going to come back and pour out wrath. Not today, not now, not yet. And we need to know that because it's not ours to repay. It's not ours to have revenge. In a way, it's not ours to glory in their downfall right now. Not yet, not now. But when His timing comes, it'll be right. And when His wrath is to be poured out, only He 
can wield it. It reminds me of, remember when King Arthur was trying to get the sword Excalibur out of the rock? Nobody else could do it. Because it was prophesied only one king could pull out that sword. Only one king can wield wrath. Go to Isaiah 63. Watch how this is written. Isaiah chapter 63. This is another very terrifying passage. There will be no mistaking who the avenger truly is. In the way, in a sense, it's only right. Here's the reason why. Before I read this, it's only right that he is the only person that can wield it. And to me, it's very simple. When he went to the cross... Everyone scattered. When he comes to repay, he's the only one that truly deserves to pour out wrath. Isaiah 63, 1-6. Just listen to it. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra, with his garment stained crimson? And I'll talk about that verse in a second. Who is this? robed in splendor, striding forward in the greatness of His strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Again, He's speaking in righteousness. Remember, He's coming out in truth and righteousness. Verse 2, Why are your garments red, like those of one treading the winepress? And what a winepress is, is they would step on grapes, so wine would come out. If they had a white garment, and as you step on grapes, it's seeps into the fabric of the white to where a white garment turns red or purple. So what is, what is the wine here? Verse 3, I have trodden a wine press alone from the nations. No one was with me. I trampled them in my anger and trod them down in my wrath. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. The year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support, so my own arm worked salvation for me. My own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations in my anger. In my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. The bride has sung. They have feasted. Now the groom is ready. It is time for war. Let's go back to Revelation 19. Never before has a war that has yet to be fought have been so discussed and anticipated. Never will an army be so deadly, nor an enemy so mercilessly destroyed. In verses 13 to 21, we're going to read about what is known as the Battle of Armageddon. Why is it called the Battle of Armageddon? First of all, go to Revelation 16. And look at verse 16. Here's the reason why it's called the Battle of Armageddon. Verse 16 said, Then they gathered the kings together to the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Armageddon in Hebrew means the Mount of Megiddo. Some people say the realm of Megiddo. Megiddo, you go to the next slide, is this low land north of Jerusalem. It's called the Valley of Megiddo. Actually, in the Old Testament, a lot of battles were fought there. Look at verses 13 and 14 of Revelation 16. This is in the very end of the seven-year tribulation. 
It says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and water was dried up to prepare the way for kings from the east. So these kings are going to start coming from the east, like China, Iran, Iraq. Some people believe Russia. Verse 13, Then I saw three evil spirits that looked like frogs. They came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are the spirits of demons performing miraculous signs. They go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them for battle on the great day, the battle of God Almighty. So what this is, is during the tribulation period, the idea is that Satan is going to influence the world to rage against God. Psalm 2 says, Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand against the Lord and His anointed. So what's going to happen at the end of the seven-year tribulation period, they are going to come out with fists raged, ready to destroy God's Son. Ready to meet Him in battle. And they are going to be influenced to come there through demons, is the idea. So we're going to have a battle line. On one end is going to be all the kings of the earth in their armies, their horde. It's going to be bad. It's going to be the site of the most blood-filled event in the history of the world. Gettysburg, with its blood-stained grass of 51,000, will be child's play. Because here's the battle. And as we talk about the battle, we need to talk about it from what I would call a point of view from a just war theory. Ethicists say that there's two kinds of wars. There's what's an unjust war and a just war. A just war has to have two things. Proper purposes or objectives, good reasons. And it also, you also, if you go to war, you better have the ability to win the war and end it. Don't let it go on forever. So if you have good reasons and you can win the war, it's just. Unjust war is going into battle to just take out of people's land and things and kill people. In fact, if that's the reason for war, War is the height of immorality. It's a calamity that God hates. He detests. He wants it done. But sometimes war is a must and it's just. And Armageddon is both. It's a must and it's just. So let's talk about its objective. Number one, the battle of Armageddon has two purposes. First of all, retribution. Verse 15 of Revelations 19 says, Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down nations. So he wants to strike down who? Nations. Who are the nations? It contains the earth dwellers, the rebels, and the idolaters. People who don't want him. And then it says he will rule them with an iron scepter. He is going to tread the winepress. We just read this in Isaiah 63. The winepress of the fury of the wrath of God. So it's wrath. What did we say wrath is? Wrath is just payment for unrepentant sin. Two weeks ago we said God right now is patient. His kindness leads people to repentance, but if people don't repent, they are storing up wrath for the day of God's judgment. That's what this is. It's retribution. Second thing about this war, its purpose is reclamation. He's not going to win land. He's going to get it back. It says in Psalm 50, he owns all the cattle, all the lands, all the people of the earth. 
Deuteronomy 10 says the same thing. It has been lost. We talked about the title deed stuff. He's getting it back. It's a reclamation. Or you could look at it like this. It's a repossession process. He's going to repossess. Because mankind has utterly forfeited their rights to rule. So what's his strategy? That's his objective. Here's his strategy. The question for just war theory is, does he have the intelligence, does he have the means, and does he have the power to win? So let's see. There's a four parts to a strategy. Number one, he's going to leave heaven with a new army. Look at verses 7 and 8 of Revelations 19 and 14. Watch how it's written. It's kind of amazing to me. Revelation 7 and 8, Let us rejoice and be glad and give Him glory, for the wedding of the Lamb has come. So the bride has made herself ready. Remember we said the bride is the church and the martyrs. How were they dressed? In fine linen, bright and clean. So now look at verse 14. The armies of heaven... The armies of heaven were following Him, following Jesus. They were riding on white horses. And how were they dressed? In fine linen, white and clean. Who are the armies? His bride, the church. You and I will be there at Armageddon. But I have to tell you something. 1 Corinthians says something very interesting about your resurrected body, which you will be in at that at that battle. First Corinthians 15 says, you will no longer be mortal, you will no longer be weak, you will no longer be dishonorable. That means you'll be immortal, you'll be loaded with power, and you'll be arrayed in honor. You are going to be noble. Jesus is going to come down, and at the battlefront, remember that picture of Megiddo? On one lining of the kings of the earth with their rabble, on the other lining of Jesus, King Jesus, with his army of immortals. Compared to Hugh, the humans that are lined up in battle against all of, all of them, it'll be like swatting flies beating them. Those who once we feared, kings and nobles and politicians and leaders and those who think they rule the earth, they are going to fear us. They're going to, they're going to say, I never, I never knew. That's what Scripture says. I'm not trying to make up some imaginative story. So then the next question is this. How will this strategy take place? Well, second thing, according to Acts chapter 1, we are going to land on the Mount of Olives. Jesus actually is. He's going to land on the Mount of Olives. Remember when He left, He went into heaven, the disciples were looking up, the angel said, what are you looking at? He's going to come down exactly the way He left. Now go to Zechariah 14. You won't believe this passage. Zechariah 14. Zechariah is the second to the last book in the Old Testament, right before Malachi. Zechariah 14. This is the earthly operation launching. This is where we begin. This is where we are going to be helicoptered, platooned in on horses that fly down. It'll be amazing. You're, you're saying, Chris, you are crazy. I know, because I, I believe the Bible. Zechariah 14, verse 3. 
Then the Lord will go out and fight against those nations as He fights in the day of battle. On that day, His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. East of Jerusalem, and the Mount of Olives will be split into from east to west, forming a great valley with half the mountain moving north and half moving south. You will flee by my mountain valley for extended zeal. You will flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come and all the holy ones with him. On that day there will be no light, no cold or frost. It will be a unique day without daytime or nighttime, a day known to the Lord. When evening comes there will be light. On that day, living water will flow from Jerusalem half to the eastern sea, half to the western sea. In the summer and the winter, the Lord will be king over the whole earth. On that day, there will only be one Lord and His name the only name. To me, that's fascinating. So how is this battle going to be waged? All right, so we're going to begin operations. The question is, will we have enough firepower? Well, did you know Jesus says overwhelming use of force? According to Ezekiel, he's going to have hail. We just read here in Zechariah, he is going to use earthquakes. Look at Zechariah 14 again. Stay in this. He's going to use... Tell me what this reminds you of, verse 12. Listen to verse 12. This is the plague which the Lord will strike all the nations that fought against Jerusalem. Their flesh will rot while they are still standing on their feet. Their eyes will rot in their sockets and their tongues will rot in their mouths. Does that remind you of anything? Hiroshima and Nagasaki, kind of the same thing. He will have fire to fight with. Habakkuk, he will have floods and lightning. He's also going to have burning sulfur coming down out of the sky. But you know the, the weapon that's going to exert the most damage? At first, it doesn't sound like, compared to this, it's nothing. But think about this for a second. According to Revelations 19, he's going to have one implement that you will not, if you are his enemy, be able to stand against. It's called a double-edged sword. The word of his mouth. And you think about that. How can the word of his mouth destroy enemies? Well, wait a minute. He's the creator. How did he create? He spoke worlds and universes into existence. He said, let there be light and there was light. Can you imagine the day he speaks and he says, let them be destroyed. I am no longer hanging on to them. If you ever saw Lord of the Rings, when the, remember when they cut off Sauron's finger, his hand, and the ring fell, and there was like this. I think that's what it's going to be like. And we're not fighting. He is. We're going to stand on this side of him and it's going to be bad. And then the last thing is, is um, just, a, just to clarify a little bit, I read in Isaiah 63 where it says he's walking out of Eden from Basra with his robe stained crimson. Why are you? It's basically he's going to go to Edom where the righteous Jews went to hide from the wrath of the Antichrist. And then he's going to come and set those captives free and bring them back to Jerusalem. It's going to be amazing. The war will not last years. It will not last decades or months. It will be quick. Mankind will be destroyed in less time than it takes to travel to Boston in the springtime. When Jesus unloads, the war will end before it fully begins. And there are two spoils to war. We read 
he is going to bring two people captive, the Antichrist and his prophet. We're not going to get into it because next week we're going to talk about the millennial kingdom and the thousand-year reign. And There's this idea of throwing people into a fiery lake of burning sulfur. We'll talk about that next week because there's some dispute on, is hell forever? What is this? We're not, we don't have time to talk about that this week. So the, so the captured, we're going to capture the enemy leaders. But there's going to be a casualty rate like nothing you've ever seen. Go to Jeremiah 25. It will be the last thing we read. The casualties are frightful. Jeremiah 25. And this is what we'll end on. And I'll just let it speak for itself. Look at verse 30 of Jeremiah 25. Verse 30. Now prophesy all these words against them and say to them, The Lord will roar from on high. He will thunder from His holy dwelling, a roar mightily against His land. He will shout like those treading the grapes. See how it has the same consistent ideas coming down to tread the winepress. Shout against all who live on the earth. The tumult will resound to the ends of the earth. For the Lord will bring charges against the nations. He will bring judgment on all mankind and put the wicked to the sword. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Look, disaster is spreading from nation to nation. A mighty storm is rising from the ends of the earth. At that time, those slain by the Lord will be everywhere. From one end of the earth to the other. They will not be mourned or gathered up, or buried, but will be like refuse lying on the ground. Final question. Is this something to rejoice about? Because I'm telling you, in the beginning of Revelation 19, they were rejoicing. It says in Deuteronomy 32, they were rejoicing specifically about the battle of Armageddon. Is this something to rejoice about? Or is God a bloodthirsty brute? And are we allowed to rejoice like this? And if we do rejoice in this, should we not be ashamed of ourselves for the misery that is going to happen over the face of the earth? First of all, if God sanctions something, is it not right? If He tells us to rejoice... Is it not right? And I'll give you three reasons why I think it is something to rejoice about. Patience has come to an end during the Battle of Armageddon, and all that really is the right thing to do is to destroy them. His patience over these really, what I'm going to say, 6,000 years, 2,000 since his son arrived, it's been expensive. It has a lot allowed a lot of misery. It has allowed some of the worst, heinous crimes you've ever seen in your life. Some of you have been recipients from the sinful acts of wicked people. Patience has been expensive. And if you think he hasn't been patient, the one who was crucified, his son, was on the cross saying, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. To think you are more patient than God because you don't want to rejoice in this? Oh, I've got more compassion than God. That's arrogant. 
Number two, after a while, if forgiveness is not received, if God offers forgiveness and it's not received, it has become a pearl, God's greatest pearl, trampled upon in the mud. Jesus shed His blood for people. And when people reject it, they are saying, nah, <laughs> it's not that precious. It's not. It's not. The third reason why I say it's rejoicing is righteous is because patience must have its limit if it's to be considered just. Patience without limits can morph into wickedness because it will eventually allow evil to win and the weak and oppressed to be trampled on forever. If patience never has a limit, the wicked win. God must act. He must. And when He does, we will, I guarantee it, rejoice. But not now. Not yet. Armageddon is something to cheer about. But in the meantime, you know an awful lot of people, if they don't accept this gospel, they're going to face an army that they've never seen before. And it's not going to be funny. It's going to be humiliating and devastating. And their corpses are going to be left on the ground so we can see their utter humiliation. So as we really think about this this week, I just ask you to, first of all, have compassion on people that don't get it. Number two, restrain your anger, your retribution, your revenge. Joe Clement was right. The world is falling to pieces, but those pieces are falling together for a purpose. To glorify Jesus. Thirdly, worship Him and Him alone because He's glorious. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this day. We thank You for just an outstanding book. It's, it's, um, in magnitude, there's nothing like the book of Revelation. There just isn't. In the, the promises that we are going to rejoice with you in heaven, there's no greater promise. But the, also, that's a promise that you're going to come back. There's no worse promise. So, Father, help us to live in sobriety and honesty. Help us to be serious people. But also help us to rejoice that we have a God that's going to win. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.